In 1988, I was doing a film about Tibetan Buddhism in India when His Holiness the Dalai Lama suggested that I film the State Oracle of Tibet going into one of his rare trances. I was somewhat surprised and very delighted. This highly ritualized form of spirit possession had been extremely secretive, a very esoteric appendage to the body of Tibetan Buddhism. To my knowledge, it had never been filmed before. The events of that morning were unlike anything I had ever encountered and raised deeply puzzling questions about the nature of self and consciousness, let alone the reality of spirits and their ability to enter our world through the vessel of a human body. Many strange things happened that morning. Some of them could be filmed, but some of them, well, one of them in particular I've been wanting to follow up on for the last 15 years. What is this thing we call self, this enigmatic and supposedly consistent identity we're apparently born with? My seven-month-old granddaughter on the day before I leave for India. Clearly, her sense of herself is already developing, long before language and the I-word have become part of her mental scenery. She dwells in the present moment, unlike her grandfather, who is up the entire night before leaving doing the mountains of paperwork modern life demands when you leave it behind for a few months. Far from dwelling in the moment, his sense of self is fragmentary, babbling incoherently and fully dependent on black coffee to maintain any sense of the present whatsoever. At the base of the Daladar range of the greater Himalayas, Upper Dharamsala or McLeod Gange straddles a ridge at about 6,000 feet. It's home to the Tibetan government in exile and the Dalai Lama, whose compound occupies a hill at one end of the town. It is also the home of four oracles, the unusual trance state when a spirit supposedly takes possession of the body of a medium to give advice and predict the future. The most widely known of the four is the state oracle of Tibet, the Le Chung, whose medium resides at a monastery, part of a large complex, halfway between the upper and lower towns. The Nature Oracle I filmed in 1988 is the 14th in a line that dates back four centuries. Tupton Nodup was an ordinary monk in the Nature Monastery when he fell down in a spontaneous trance a few years after the death of the 13th medium. After extensive testing, he was confirmed as the physical basis for Dorji Drakta, the emissary and oracular voice of the Pehar, the five nature spirit kings who have protected Tibetan Buddhism since the 8th century, when, as legend tells, they were subdued by the great Indian tantric master, Padmasambhava. 
I became the Nichung medium, or rather I was possessed for the first time by the Nichung oracle, by the Nichung spirit, in 1987, on the 31st of March. So I was at that time an ordinary monk of the monastery, and the previous uh, oracle passed away in 1984, uh, around April. The scientific worldview is tangible, measurable, empirical. Its realm is space and time. But in the Buddhist great chain of being, there are six realms of existence, and within them, sentient beings can exist on 31 different planes. We human beings exist on the level of gross form. Nature spirits exist on the level of very subtle forms, or are completely formless. So, among these formless spirit, uh, like human being, uh, some are uh, religious minded, <laughs> some are non-believer. I'm not very sure whether there's communist or not, I don't know. <laughs> Otherwise, I'm quite sure, I think, they, among these uh, spirit, I think the Buddhists or Hindus, as well as I think most probably, I think Christians and Muslim. I think so. When the 8th century Indian master Padmasambhava came to Tibet to bring Buddhism to its inhabitants, he found a warlike people practicing a highly developed form of nature religion called Bon. Mountains, lakes, forests, rivers all had their local deity. They were alive and animated through the spirit's actions. Legend has it that Padmasambhava, or Guru Rinpoche as he's called by the Tibetans, went around the country subduing the major local spirits through his great spiritual attainment and oath-binding them to protect the Buddha Dharma. The Buddha's flash of insight into the ultimate nature of reality. The Tibetans believe the spirits that Guru Rinpoche oath-bound as Dharma protectors have been taking possession of a succession of numerous mediums over the last 1,200 years to act as oracles, giving advice on spiritual practice and worldly matters, doing healings, predicting the future, and in the case of the state oracles, advising on public and religious policy. It's related that the Nechung Oracle, institutionalized over 350 years ago as a principal advisor to the government, told the Dalai Lama through the previous medium the precise moment and route to take to avoid the Red Army when he fled Tibet in 1959. How accurate are the oracles that are being used by yourself? Mm. Not yet. Many factors involved. Mm. Firstly, the spirit itself, uh, something 
reliable, of course. Then uh, take as example nature now. The, the oracle itself, very reliable. Then the medium. medium. Or medium. I think there are from birth, you see, some differences. Uh, body condition, physical, physical sight. Then on top of that, they need certain meditation or certain practice. Then the medium gaining more deeper sort of spiritual experiences. Then entrance become easier and more clear, more reliable. Uh, the negative spirit then their entering become more difficult. So the medium sort of practice very, very important. Eventually uh, becoming more clearer, clearer. And then you can, uh, you can trust. I brought His Holiness a gift, a scientific version of an oracle, a weather station with a remote console that measures just about everything, and it's supposed to do forecasting, though thunderstorms here can roll over the mountains with practically no warning. Two of the household monks help His Holiness's younger brother and I install it on the roof of his residence. They don't listen, these two. They think they're enlightened. You know, I always uh, felt that there are oracles everywhere. If you go in the hills of Dharamsala, among the local people, every village has one. The Indian people. Yeah, but they don't announce it. No. Now, since all our origin is of shamanistic uh, nature, I'm sure, you know, everywhere, you know, there must have been oracles. And uh, in the Western world today, you know, say any country, there must have been, but I think Christianity has a lot to do with abolishing them. Christianity accepted the idea of spirit possession, but sought to marginalize it. If the spirits weren't necessarily evil, they were pagan, and to be avoided by God-fearing folk. Perhaps part of the reason for this was the physical manifestations of transpossession. The distortion of the face and voice, often accompanied by superhuman feats of strength, or the piercing of the body with sharp implements. I used to get very scared of trances. And one of the greatest fear as a child is to uh, go and approach a, what do you call, oracle. Because most of the oracles are in its wrathful form. Wrathful, okay? And that is, uh, for a child, it's uh, pretty scary. The wrathful form of the Nei Chung in 1988. Without warning, a layman went into spontaneous trance. The two oracles shrieked at one another face to face as if they wanted to tear each other apart. But I was told that in fact the second spirit was paying homage to Nei If that was homage, I wondered what an argument could possibly look like. Suddenly the second oracle popped out of trance, and the man, unaware of what had happened, was carried off, leaving me with more questions than answers. But this was nothing compared to what happened next. I mean, what's really going on in an objective fashion? What's really going on? This, this is the big question. You're Harvard trained. That's correct. PhD. That's correct. 
How do you explain this phenomenon? Hmm. Yeah, I'm still trying to work my way through that. The longer you're involved with it, the more magic and mystery seems to be what's really going on. While at any given time there can be hundreds of young Western tourists visiting Dharamsala, most stay for just a week or two and move on, never having looked beneath the surface. But there are also dozens of long-term residents, scholars, students and teachers, who encounter the magical side of Tibetan Buddhism almost on a daily basis. In one way or another, they grapple with the phenomenon of oracles. Our teachers usually, when they they usually tell us, because Buddhism is so full, it's so vast, and they say, take what you can, and the rest, if you can't handle, or as Lama Yeshi would say, if it freaks you out, just leave it. You know, you can take it and look at it later. So this whole thing with deities and oracles and all this magical stuff, I'm just kind of left aside for the time being. One told me... Um Oh, from now until your death, you will have endless problems. <laughs> How did you feel? <laughs> there wasn't a lot I could do about it. And I went to see a lama. Yeah, like lamas are kind of higher than oracles. And I went to this lama. And everybody said, oh, go and see this lama. I went and saw this lama. And he said, oh, yes, you get paralysis, heart problems. And then he went to know. <laughs> I was thrilled. <laughs> when you were up in Tibet, so I guess you were, you were with nomadic tribes, or were you? Yes, and mostly nomadic people. John Vincent Beleza is an explorer and cultural historian. Buddhist and Bonpo. Who has spent years researching village oracles on the Tibetan plateau. So what actually is going on? As I said, there are a number of, I mean, a, a number of theories that are churned about. Such as a state of self-induced uh, psychosis where there's a disassociation, a normal personality and some other type of personality, perhaps more deeply seated in the psyche, emerges, uh, rears, its, rears its head and becomes the, the new persona. Uh, where all, does the old consciousness go? Though? This is a very good question. Where does the old consciousness go? It seems to be displayed. I mean, according to most traditional definitions of trans states, particularly in Tibet, the, the 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 consciousness of the medium is displaced, is actually removed from his body, his or her body, and exists somewhere else. Exists in a in a mirror or exists in the ethers, but actually leaves the person's body and is replaced by the consciousness of the deity. Part of the problem lies the currency, the very currency of the trance state, consciousness, has not been satisfactorily delineated in a scientific fashion. So how can we understand the phenomena of trance, of mediumship, which is based on consciousness, when we don't even have a firm understanding of what constitutes human consciousness. 1988, South India. As the Machin Oracle tossed out barley seeds to the monks as a blessing, I took my attention off him for just a second. At that precise moment, something I can only describe as a force shot through my body, practically blowing me off the steps. 
Once I'd recovered from the shock, I looked around, expecting others to be wondering what hit them. But no one else seemed affected. I played back the moment. Out of the corner of my eye, I'd seen the plane of his arm sweep past me right at that very second. But what was it that entered me? It seemed to be conscious, like something going quickly through me, checking me out. But why? Normally a state oracle only goes into trance for the Dalai Lama or for the cabinet of the government in exile. But the Nechun will sometimes go into trance to predict and guide the spiritual welfare of his monastery. People living around Nechun Monastery will hear the certain sound of the, um, the thigh-bone trumpets and the drums being drummed and they will know that the oracle is about to go into trance and so they will run there. These trance sessions are usually extremely private. You are very, very lucky if you get tipped off or you just happen to be there by chance to attend one. He's doing a meditation. So there's no set sort of gradual progression of uh, his falling in trance. However, when he himself sits there and then he listens to the invitation prayer and so forth, he sort of feels uh, a feeling of anxiety and, uh, and very small vibrations. First, from the fingers onward, and then the heartbeat. The heartbeat increases and then the, and then the vibration comes from the feet and then he feels like a feeling kind of bloating swelling here and then all of a sudden it's like in a snap uh, that he falls unconscious You asked about Tema. Mm. Tema first appeared on our hillside around the mid-90s at a spring teaching. His, it was in the morning. I was in the audience. His Holiness was teaching. And suddenly there was a woman's voice, extremely powerful, singing in the crowded courtyard. And By singing you mean... Yes, it had the sound of being arias or... Yes. So 
bodyguards immediately rushed over and did rugger tackles on her and felled her and dragged her out because it was assumed that she was somebody who had got a little over the top and then in the afternoon his holiness was teaching he was actually I think reading a transmission of a text when the singing started again and he was reading and just going like this which meant leave her alone what's she like? petite extremely pretty shy, discreet Uh, when she first came she had beautiful pink cheeks straight from the nomad land of Kham the Tibetans refer to her as Kandro which is their word for sky dancing goddess now in her late 20s she grew up in nomad and Kham the far eastern province of old Tibet like other new arrivals from Tibet she made her way to Dharamsala but her story was an astonishing odyssey even here where incredible stories are commonplace when she kept going into trance at audiences for newly arrived Tibetans and at public teachings, the Dalai Lama requested an investigation. In Tibet, there are so many people who are oracles. But the deities who are coming inside their bodies are very small in their power. Supervising the investigation at the request of the Dalai Lama, was Kalkajetsin Damba Rinpoche, the traditional head of the Mongolian branch of Tibetan Buddhism. During the investigation, it appeared increasingly possible that through this young Tibetan woman were coming some of the highest deities in the Tibetan pantheon. Primarily a few of the twelve Tenma goddesses who are in the extended retinue of the very highest female protector deity of Tibet, Palthen Lamo. It was a very big job to confirm that she was actually a powerful spirit and very important because His Holiness asked for it, you know. And if they would make any mistake in this, it would result in a very bad situation. But how did he actually determine that she was Tema? If you study and practice Pandelhamu, you'll be able to recognize the Tema Chunyi, the 12th Tema. Actually, there are many realized masters who can see the deities, how they look, what they are wearing, are they riding a horse or a lion or whatever. And when His Holiness asked Rinpoche, so what do you think? What is it? Is it important? Who is coming inside her body? Rinpoche replied, I can tell that there is the Tema. One or two or three of the Temas are coming inside her body. But it would be better to have the Nichung Oracle and this Oracle meet in trance. Because the Nichung can also recognize who is possessing her and make a determination. In fact, when the Nichung Oracle is in trance, if a fake oracle comes into his presence, he will recognize the phony and throw him out immediately. 
And when the Nijum oracle came and went into trance, he confirmed that she is indeed real. And that in future, she'll become very beneficial for the Tibetan people. Once the Nechung's confirmation was accepted, the Dalai Lama requested that she begin intensive practice to keep her body's channels clear of obstructions. She was also asked to keep a low profile, out of concern that she would be besieged by people wanting her to predict the future. Regardless of what happens to the self, the person, or the consciousness during trance, the possession affects the body of the medium profoundly. The physical force, when trance, very forceful, their body becomes like rock. And apparently, as my own experience in 1988 seemed to show, they appear to be able to project something of that intense energy, if not some conscious awareness, at a distance. The trances also take their toll on the body of the medium. Historically, the Nechung oracles have not lived much beyond 50 years. In the case of the Tenma, she had difficulties even before she first began to be possessed at age eight. She relates that as a young child, she showed a great concern for all life, even feeling sorry for the ticks she had to remove from the sheep. And apparently, she showed an early uncanny ability to tell people what was happening in their lives. Her trances started spontaneously at age eight. Once, while walking on a mountainside, she went into trance and fell down the steep slope. She was unconscious for a week. In her coma, she had a vision of goddesses of light placing her on a throne and offering her garlands of flowers and ritual barley cakes. Within a few years, she made her way to Lhasa, the capital of Tibet, where she went into trance on the steps of the Jokang Temple and started shouting for Tibetan freedom. Immediately, a Chinese policeman started to beat her with his rifle butt, but apparently she was so powerful in her trance that she took the gun away from him. Perhaps because the police considered her mad, they didn't arrest her, and when she recovered, she didn't know what she had shouted. She wasn't even aware that Tibet was occupied. She was advised to flee Lhasa and go home. Instead, with no money or food, she made her way south, where she relates that a mysterious old man, half-naked like an Indian sadhu, gave her money and told her to go to where the Dalai Lama lives. It took her 27 days, sometimes going a week without food, to cross the Himalayas. 
Like Nei Chung, the Gedong is a state oracle with his own monastery that he's had to rebuild in exile. Unlike Nei Chung, it's a hereditary oracleship, passing from father to son. While he is called in for official trances, it's usually alongside the Nei Chung because the Gedong oracle in trance does not yet speak. No, still, uh, I'm not. Still not? This, I don't know. This is not my trouble. It's not having serious... <laughs> The trouble of the spirit. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Sometimes it happened. Yes. Because the other oracle. Yes. He used to his father never speak. The Gedong medium is referring to the third state oracle, the Sangpa, who died a few years ago. Like Gedong, it's a hereditary oracle ship passing from father to son for many hundreds of years. I've met the eldest son of the late Sangpa, Tenzin Chojor, at a party. He's an aspiring photographer who would prefer not to be an oracle. Oracle, I mean, like, you know, you have to put on lots of time in, you know, getting involved with spiritual things. You have to do lots of prayers. And, you know, you, and photography is also something where you have to spend a lot of time. And it takes time to grow. Why I want to become a photographer is to tell the world about Tibetan people and the situation through my photography. Not because I want to become a photographer and make lots of money from it. But you know, if it is my destiny to become an oracle, then I would accept it. I screened the 1988 sequence for the Nechung medium to see if he can shed some light on what happened to me when I was practically blown off my feet. Before we can get to it, an unusual coincidence comes to light. It turns out that the layman who spontaneously went into trance was none other than the Sangpa medium, and the wrathful shrieking was the very first time the oracle spoke. Standing behind him, unnoticed by me or the camera, was an eight-year-old Tenzin Chojo. Did your father ever talk to you about uh, what's involved in being an oracle? It is a hereditary line. Yeah. Uh, it's unusual that your father wouldn't have said anything. Do you think maybe he thought he might be the last no. of the line? I really have no idea how my father thought. <laughs> I think the the tradition will keep going, I think so. But it is also, I mean, it's not upon my father to decide who is the oracle. You know, it just, you know, I don't know, it just happens, you know. There is a fourth oracle in Dharamsala. Unlike the state oracles that only go into trance for the Dalai Lama or the government in exile, or the Tenma who has the role of protecting the Buddha Dharma, Yudronma is a village oracle, used for consultations by individuals. But I was asked, so I please want to ask whether I have some obstacles. (laughs) 
Village oracles are abundant within Tibet and in the traditionally Tibetan areas of India like Spiti and Ladakh. There are no less than 17 village oracles in Spiti, a 150-kilometer-long, sparsely populated and isolated Himalayan valley that rises upwards from 12,000 feet and has long been inhabited by ethnic Tibetans. Village oracles up here harken back to the pre-Buddhist Tibet of Guru Rinpoche. They tend to be possessed by lower-level nature spirits and are used principally for healings and social matters. Essentially, they are self-appointed, with no authentication process other than their acceptance by the local population. There is always the potential for fakery and abuse of their authority. Now, in a village, someone to go into trance, then the medium becomes of high status. And then along with the ability to go into trance or having the ability to put on an act, faking it, yeah. it becomes a tremendous source of income. People come and give you an offering and then you do your thing. So it's a business. Actually, they were supposed to be a consultant, consultants in people's spiritual development, not in earthly welfare. While they accept the reality of oracles, a large number of educated lay Tibetans feel some ambivalence about their use in the modern world. But there is a small minority, those who want complete independence for Tibet rather than the Dalai Lama's middle path approach, who are critical of the use of oracles, especially for making political decisions. In a democratic society, the elected people have the responsibility to make decisions and to be responsible for they can't put the blame on some uh, non-existent, nameless and formless being. Even in old Tibet, you know, a lot of the oracles uh, face not only doubt but criticism. Though we used to live here in Dharamsala, the essayist and novelist Jamyang Norbut has moved with his family to rural Tennessee. Even in public, you know, the Tibetan national oracle has been booed in public. After you, yeah, we predicted wrongly when about the British, uh, you know, the invasion, the young husband invasion, and you know, 700 Tibetans in one day were massacred. He said that um, the Tibetans were not to worry that the heavenly armies, you know, would back up the, you know, the militia, and that he would be there to lead the heavenly armies. And of course, that's, you know, we were just massacred. They had Gatling guns. 700 Tibetan you know, militia just slaughtered. And people avoid responsibility by asking, uh, you know, the oracle. If you invoke the oracle, then, you know, your hands, it's clean, you know. I, I didn't say that. The oracle made the decision, you know. Oracles are also misused in other ways than for avoiding responsibility and earthly gain. 
Their spirits are sometimes propitiated as enlightened deities, worthy of going to for spiritual refuge. These are mundane sort of spirits. So, should not consider them as a refuge. But unfortunately, due to lack of knowledge about Buddha Dharma, uh, then sometimes the people, you see, do sort of, or say the absolute sort of uh, protector, something like that, ultimate protector, consider or treat them almost like Buddha. That's totally wrong. Feeding birds, feeding place, yeah. then second, protection. Mm. Yeah. Otherwise, there's a lot of small birds, you see, together. Then what do you call hawk? Hawk. Sometimes, you see, they uh, come. So, uh, this is the one-way protection. The issue of improper use of oracles reached ahead in the 1990s with a seething controversy that culminated in a horrible ritual murder. The beginnings of the Shugden Oracle are murky, going back at least 350 years to the time of the fifth Dalai Lama. What is clear is that at the end of the last century, an influential High Lama elevated this relatively minor oracle to be the chief protector of the Gelug school the Dalai Lama's own branch of Tibetan Buddhism. Despite the warnings of the previous Dalai Lama, many of the Gelugs began to propitiate this spirit as fully enlightened. The problems intensified when the oracle proclaimed that the Gelugs should not do any practices of the other three schools. This led to sectarian rifts and concerns by the other schools that the already powerful Gelugs were using this oracle for political, not spiritual, advancement. The present Dalai Lama, as the political head of all Tibetans, has always been strictly non-sectarian and has therefore practiced teachings from all four schools. The Shugden Oracle's insistence on doctrinal purity, if not a personal attack on him, was certainly a thorn in the side of his policy of non-sectarianism. In other words, it is a fundamentalist Gurupa um, Oracle, and the Dalai Lama necessarily have to say, if you are closely associated with that oracle, you can't be closely associated with me because my constituency isn't limited just to one say. The Dalai Lama's response was very direct. He stated that the practice of Shugden was a form of spirit worship and was harmful to the Dalai Lama institution and Tibetan unity. While he could not tell anyone not to practice it, he would ask practitioners of Shugden not to attend his teachings. This request shook the Gelug sect to its foundations. Large numbers of the High Lamas were Shugden devotees and the practice was even well established among Western students. A profound choice had to be made. A Western friend of mine wrote me, even today I find it hard to talk about though I don't feel especially connected anymore. But it went very deep and the process of stopping is very complex. The spirit has a firm hold. It's akin to the feelings held by cult followers when trying to separate. Huge guilt stuff. While nearly all the Gelugs gave up the practice, some did not. And there were elements in the Tibetan community who were overzealous in how they dealt with those who refused. This led to charges of witch hunts. 
Things reached an almost absurd plateau when the more radical Shugden supporters charged that the Dalai Lama was trying to suppress their religious freedom. As far from the truth as this was, it did illustrate the extremely dangerous mood that was brewing. On a night in February 1997, the head of the Institute of Buddhist Dialectics and an outspoken critic of the extremes of the Shugden supporters was followed back to Dharamsala from Delhi and ritually murdered along with two young assistants. He was a really close friend and a teacher. But the, the, the way of, of death, sort of unpleasant. I've never seen murder. You know, murder is a part of human life. People sort of digging knives at other people and cutting their throat and stabbing them all over the place. And the young boys who died with him, well, the Dalai Lama said, you, you can't feel sorry for a man who's had a wonderful life. You feel sorry for the people who killed him. I mean, I really do feel sorry for them. You can't feel sorry for somebody who had an excellent life. But the young boys who died with him, terrible. The Indian police believe the perpetrators escaped into Chinese Tibet, where they apparently remain beyond the reach of Indian law. It's common belief here that they were supported and funded by the Chinese Secret Service to create disunity among the Tibetan community in exile. Though the Dalai Lama agrees that oracles have often been misused, he feels that to stop their use would mean abandoning a unique part of Tibetan culture and would not be in keeping with the Buddhist middle way. Religion also sometimes misuse. That's, I think, a little bit extreme. Uh, uh, if you entirely rely, relying on oracle, extreme. If you entirely dismiss this, that also extreme. When you personally use oracles, what do you use them for? Two types. Mm -hmm. Like uh, annual sort of what is it, meeting. Uh, one, one, one category is something like annual meeting. But then uh, some important questions or matters comes. This is the annual kind of meeting. It's the first time the Dalai Lama has ever allowed it to be filmed. He places me at a safe distance so I'm not in the way, but recalling that flash of enormous energy passing through my body, there's a tingle of excitement mixed with a definite sense of familiarity, and I can't help wishing I was right in close. Watching the sense of self disappear like this brings a certain fascination. The Ne Chung is the principal state oracle, goes first into trance. He's followed by the Gadong, the oracle who does not yet speak. The Dalai Lama believes it may be because of his physical condition. He contracted tuberculosis when he came to India from Tibet. But once he disappears into trance, Whatever possesses him makes a mighty effort to get out a few words. Finally, the Tenma is brought in. While she's not a state oracle, she is a protector of the Buddha Dharma, 
the vast body of Buddhist thought she's been oath-bound to support for the last 1,200 years. Looking at this face, it dawns on me that whether we try to interpret this experience from a Western psychological perspective as some dissociated or transpersonal state of human consciousness, or see it like the Tibetans as a window onto a consciousness that is completely non-human, that ultimately we are witnessing the self disappearing within an experience of such depth and subtlety that any explanation for it will necessarily come up short. Although it's perhaps worth noting that the Tibetan explanation engenders respect for the experience, while mainstream psychological science treats it at best as anomalous and at worst as abnormal. What did you learn? Uh, no particular sort of, sort of uh, points to, to ask them. And this year, uh, we will contact with Chinese government, so this should be successful. And then, me personally, visit different country, so any some serious obstacle, they are not. They all say, okay, no problem. Then one occasion, the Nijung Oracle much sort of moved. He asked me, I should live long. So like like human being, very much emotion, nearly sort of crying. And then Tama, similar sort of response at the end, some poems uh, expressing again for my long life, for prayer or for some kind of request, like that. Whatever oracles are, for the Dalai Lama they are not special. They are just another input into his decision-making process. We are human beings. <laughs> These are oracles. We are uh, more important. We have more responsibility. <laughs> I usually ask them their suggestion. Uh, if something, uh, according to our common sense, or oh, this is definitely only one choice, then we take decision. But if there are few choices, we feel dilemma. Then ask different views, or sort of, what's the day? I mean, different views from different people as well as different oracles. Right. That usually I do. Then, then finally, usually I do the divination. But these things, you need some meditation. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in my case, firstly, uh, I remember Buddha. Then Bama Sambhava, then Lama Zongava, uh, then Mahakala. After a lengthy sequence of meditations that culminates in the Buddhist view of interdependency, the Dalai Lama does a traditional Tibetan divination. In the Mo or Dobal divination, balls of barley dough are wrapped around pieces of paper with choices written on them. They are then rolled around inside a bowl. With the mind in a meditative state that directly perceives the interdependence of all things, the ball that first escapes the rim sometimes becomes... Uh, speaker of truth. Otherwise, this 
Very good sort of method to investigate what's the reality. So I admire, I respect. Uh, that does not mean the science knows everything. Modern science up to now mainly concentrate on a field where you can see, you can calculate or you can measurement. Measure. A measure. So that is a physical, formless field. Uh, you need some different method. Have you ever considered the physiological testing of oracles in trance? Not yet. Not yet. Yeah. Interesting question. Though. Oh, yes, I, I want. But then, of course, first, the, we should have the permission from the oracle. <laughs> then if we get permission with, with, <laughs> with beating the... <laughs> So that's not a very um, an exclusive experience. There are several other people who have experienced the same thing. There are even some who going themselves in, in a trance. So these sort of electrifying uh, experiences happen quite often to several people. Just because of the actual power of uh, of the oracle? Sure. It's, it's definitely like that, and it's, it's also seen as a blessing.
acting, he was confirmed as the physical basis for Dorji Drakta, the emissary and oracular voice of the Pehar, the five nature spirit kings who have protected Tibetan Buddhism since the 8th century, when, as legend tells, they were subdued by the great Indian tantric master, Padmasambhava. I became the Nichun medium, or rather I was possessed for the first time by the Nichun oracle, by the Nichun spirit, uh, in 1987, on the 31st of March. So I was at that time an ordinary monk of the monastery, and the, the previous uh, oracle passed away in 1984, uh, around April. The scientific worldview is tangible, measurable, empirical. Its realm is space and time. But in the Buddhist great chain of being, there are six realms of existence, and within them, sentient beings can exist on 31 different planes. We human beings exist on the level of gross form. At the base of the Daladar range of the greater Himalayas, Upper Dharamsala or McLeod Gange straddles a ridge at about 6,000 feet. It's home to the Tibetan government in exile and the Dalai Lama, whose compound occupies a hill at one end of the town. It is also the home of four oracles, the unusual trance state when a spirit supposedly takes possession of the body of a medium to give advice and predict the future. The most widely known of the four is the state oracle of Tibet. Chung, whose medium resides at a monastery, part of a large complex, halfway between the upper and lower towns. The Neqing Oracle I filmed in 1988 is the 14th in a line that dates back four centuries. Tupton Nodup was an ordinary monk in the Nechung Monastery when he fell down in a spontaneous trance a few years after the death of the 13th medium. After extensive testing, many strange things happened that morning. Some of them could be filmed, but some of them, well, one of them in particular I've been wanting to follow up on for the last 15 years. What is this thing we call self, this enigmatic and supposedly consistent identity we're apparently born with? My seven-month-old granddaughter on the day before I leave for India. Clearly, her sense of herself is already developing, long before language and the I-word have become part of her mental scenery. She dwells in the present moment, unlike her grandfather, who is up the entire night before leaving, doing the mountains of paperwork modern life demands when you leave it behind for a few months. Far from dwelling in the moment, his sense of self is fragmentary, babbling incoherently and fully dependent on black coffee to maintain any sense of the present whatsoever.
1988, I was doing a film about Tibetan Buddhism in India when His Holiness the Dalai Lama suggested that I film the State Oracle of Tibet going into one of his rare trances. I was somewhat surprised and very delighted. This highly ritualized form of spirit possession had been extremely secretive, a very esoteric appendage to the body of Tibetan Buddhism. To my knowledge, it had never been filmed before. The events of that morning were unlike anything I had ever encountered and raised deeply puzzling questions about the nature of self and consciousness, let alone the reality of spirits and their ability to enter our world through the vessel of a human body.